Welcome to Sitka Tells Tales, airing live on KCAW Sitka. I'm your host, Ellen Frankenstein. The theme tonight is Jumping Ship, stories of change, of course. We are so excited. This is our first live event in two years. We have an actual audience, limited, but in person, and they're breathing. And we're broadcasting from the beak in the cable house, building at the same time. We're going to share six true stories told live. We'll be hearing tales of jumping homes, being stuck, changing directions, and taking leaps. Tellers for this episode of Sitka Tells Tales are Connie Sipe, Ben Kinzer, Lena Cap. Jay Stilwell, Freya Shistra, and Aaron Fulton. I am so, we are all so appreciative of everyone who has made this evening possible. Special thanks to Old Harbor Books for helping sell tickets and supporting the event. To The Beak and Raven Radio, our crew, and the tellers of true tales. Our first storyteller is Connie Sype. She is going to start us off with a story that takes a playful interpretation of our theme and what it means to lose control when you can't jump ship. Semi-retired from the Center for Community, Connie is still managing the public transit grants. She's been an Alaska resident since 1975, Sitka since 2000, and she loves to travel, usually. Welcome, Connie. Thanks, Ellen, and all of you. You know, Jumping Ship is really a, a great title to start out with because there's sometimes you think you should have jumped ship, you waited too long to jump ship, then you can't jump ship, and then you hope you can jump ship. So in February of 2020, I had a ticket to fly to Auckland, New Zealand to meet four former Alaskan friends and some friends of theirs and a little circle, so a circle of 12 of us, and we were going to leave Auckland, New Zealand on a cruise. A repositioning cruise, and I'm only going to say good things about them, so I will say it was the Holland America Bosdom, a repositioning cruise, which usually means a little bit less entertainment, a lot of scientific folks on marine science. It was, you know, good stuff, mostly older people, very few teenagers or children. And in early February, I wrote to a friend or emailed to a friend in lived in American Samoa, used to live in Sitka, and said, you know, I could come see you, Conchita. I could fly over from Auckland for a day or two. And she said, let me check my schedule. And then a couple days later sent me the announcement from the American Samoan government that they were closing the island to all people. This was in early February. Of course, our government was saying, ah, it's just in China. That coronavirus 19 is just in China. So I talked to people and I went, ah, I'm going to go. And I actually checked the travel insurance and they wouldn't cover any refunds because... The World Health Organization said it was an epidemic, so it wasn't covered on page 74, line 24. That was exempt. So <laughs> I didn't go to American Samoa, but I flew to Auckland, New Zealand, and I met my party at 12, and we boarded our cruise ship. And uh, My party, three or four of us, we were going to sail 15 days to Tahiti, and we were supposed to stop at about nine islands in that 15 days, some days at sea. And we set off, and already one little island, Niui, had told us their harbor had been damaged. I don't know if that was the real reason, but we couldn't land there. We had a lovely three days in different islands in Fiji. And then we sailed a day, and we stopped 
in Rarotonga, which is part of the Cook Islands. And when we got back on the ship, Captain PJ, who was wonderful, got on the 6 p.m. announcements and said, I'm sorry to tell you, but we're not going to be able to land in Tonga, and we're not going to be able to land in Tahiti. So those were the next big stops, two or three days in Tonga, three days in Tahiti. My, and, and at that point, we were all kind of shocked. And he said that the Rarotonga and Cook Island government had agreed that anybody who could get a plane off Cook Island in the next day and a half could stay on the ship and come on shore just when it was time to go to the airport. So people were frantically trying to get hold of airlines. And by that time, even though there'd been no COVID in, there was no COVID in Fiji and none in the Cook Islands, things were starting to change. Airlines were freaking out. Qantas wasn't flying to the Cook Islands anymore. Some people were trying to get off the ship. And about a third of the people, there were about 1,200 passengers. It was an older, small ship, 1,200 passengers, not one of the big 4,400 passengers. About a third of them got reservations to get off. So we stayed. So my friends and I, nine of us, we stayed on. They told us we'd go to Hawaii. They'd take us for free. Well, we'll go to Hawaii. We like Hawaii. We're Alaskans. We know how to get home from there on Alaska Airlines. So we sailed on to Hawaii. And that was about four or five days. And the anxiety in the ship did start to mount. Mostly a lot of people, some people from Europe, they didn't know if they could get back to their home countries because all around the world things were closing down. And then... And the internet was not good. And of course, the cell phones didn't work unless you were in a shore port, and we weren't in any shore ports. We were just out in the open ocean. Nobody was sick. Nobody ever got sick. They took good care of us. They stood staff at every entrance to every dining room with a sanitizer, and they stared you in the face till you used it. <laughs> so we sailed on towards Tahiti. You know, we thought we were going to go to Tahiti. We weren't going to go to Tahiti. And so we were going to go to Hawaii. So everybody was on the internet trying to change reservations, cancel things, get through to Air France, beg to use the ship-to-shore phone. That was a mess, most tension. People in the library on the, the ship's computers, you'd hear a little snippy, I did push that button, John. You do it next time. <laughs> so we went on, and as I said, it was an older kind of group, and we were down a third, and it was kind of mellow. The scientists had gotten up, but we still had a few entertainers, and there were things we could do. People set up bridge parties and pinochle parties, and it took it pretty well. But then things started to run out. There was no lettuce at the salad bar, and then no carrots, and then no kale. <laughs> no Campari at the bars, and the awful rumor one afternoon that we'd run out of potato chips. <laughs> Luckily, that was a false rumor. So we sailed towards Hilo, and everybody had tried to remake their reservations to fly out of Hilo. Well, the night before we were to arrive in Hilo, the governor told the ship, and the ship told us that we couldn't land in Hilo. It, it was too small a port. We had to sail on to Honolulu. So another day, and everybody had to cancel all their Hilo reservations and try to make Honolulu reservations out of Honolulu. So we sail into Honolulu at 5 a.m. on a sunny day. Waikiki is right there. And the dock is covered with a SWAT team of some sort. Police cars, people in big vests, making sure we didn't jump ship. Nobody went off. The captain had to speak from the top of the runway. But they agreed. They, let, they brought some food over. They dropped off, uh, you know, some pallets of stuff so we could re resupply. And after six hours and congressional people and governors and everybody in Holland America trying to convince the governor of Hawaii that we could get off, nope, we left on. We had another six to seven days to San Diego. A lot of empty ocean between Hawaii and San Diego. And we, uh, <laughs> we, 
we, we had a pretty good time, except for the tension again. We didn't know if we'd land. We started to hear stories of cruise ships being quarantined on military bases. The day we left Hawaii, the cruise director, the recreational guy, he got on after we had the announcement that we were staying and said, just to let you know, the Hawaiian shirt contest scheduled for two this afternoon has been canceled. The CDC has just issued a study that the wearing of flowered shirts decreases spinal fortitude. <laughs> Making fun of the governor. And many of us made a vow never to go to Hawaii again, which I'm sure we'll break. So we sailed on, and luckily when we got to San Diego, we had been quarantined on our own boat for 14 days. So the authorities let us in. We got to jump ship. And it was a strange jumping ship. We all look back. We're great friends. It was Captain PJ's retirement voyage. <laughs> it turned out to be the last Holland America cruise for the Mazdam. It's been sold to the Aegean something in the Mediterranean Sea. And looking back, maybe I should have jumped ship. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Connie. Let's do one more clap for Connie. Real people listening to real stories. And you are tuned in to Sitka Tells Tales. We'll take this off. Uh, broadcasting from the Beak live here on KCAW. Our next storyteller is Ben Kinzer. Wow. It's so cool not to be on Zoom. I can see that you are taller than I am. Ben is returning AmeriCorps and an avid milk drinker. Please welcome Ben. Hello. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I moved to Sitka about a year and a half ago now with my partner, Emma, as the new incoming wave of AmeriCorps during the pandemic. And since then, I have stayed in not one, not two, but six different places because Sitka's housing situation is so ridiculous, as I'm sure many of you know. The shortest I ever stayed in a place was two whole days, and the longest I've ever stayed in a place was five months. So Emma and I searched and searched for places to stay, and we ended up going with the SJ dorms. When we got there, we had to quarantine because we were fresh off the plane, and we had a single little pillow about this large and a blanket to share between us for that first week. It was great. <laughs> And then we had to share a kitchen with 14 other AmeriCorps, which was also great. So as you can imagine, we were just scoping out all our fresh friends to see who would be our lucky roommates to get out of the dorms as fast as possible. But once we picked our roommates, that was not the end of our struggles because we had to find a place. So every day we would scour the Facebook pages, we'd look at realty sites, we would call people. We were usually really happy if we were 10th in line on a new posting like an hour ago because everyone's searching. But we discovered that vacation rentals are a really good way to go because during winter they're pretty affordable. So that's what we went with. And by the end of the month, we moved into a little yellow house and things were looking up. However, who hasn't run into just a bad roommate situation? Who knows why? Sometimes you just don't jive. And that's what happened. Things went from good to bad to worse. And by the end of October, we just had to get out of there fast. But luckily, my principal at the time, Mandy Summer, the principal of Pacific High, is 
a wonderful, wonderful person. And she put us up in a little Airbnb for a weekend. Um, that was our shortest stay. And I remember it being just a huge breath of fresh air. We watched one of those huge first fall storms come in over the sea, and it was really nice. But we were quarantining again because I <laughs> was a close contact with someone in the schools, which was great and stressful. Um, and after that weekend, we moved across the street into our fourth place now. And this is when Sitka really felt like it was becoming a home for us. I vividly remember cooking Thanksgiving dinner with our new best friend, Abby, and feeding the ravens out our window. But this also was not to last because eventually summer ro rolled around and this was a vacation rental. So we couldn't stay there because we couldn't afford it. So next, when summer hit, we moved into the hostel, another group living situation during a pandemic. Our foresight was not strong, I guess. And sure enough, Sitka started getting its huge, big wave of COVID cases during the summer. One of our roommates got COVID. It was a really stressful situation, but they were really nice about it. They stayed in the room the whole time. We helped with whatever we could, and we got through it. During this time, Emma and I were staying in about a six by 10 foot room, the both of us, which was another struggle. I was actually really grateful that she was out fishing for most of the summer, <laughs> which I was surprised about. Yeah, so that was just more struggles. But by the end of summer, we moved into our current place, which is a lovely little A-frame cabin up the road. We've decorated it with our style, which we call wizard trash, which is just <laughs> gathering as many little beach items and trinkets from the woods um, and decorating every single square inch of our apartment. It's amazing. And we also love looking at all the birds at the bird feeder and the whales and the sea otters have started to come in, which is super cool. Just looking out our window as I work from home, really lucky. However, it is not to last because it is a lodge house. Um, so when summer comes around at the end of April, I will be kicked out and be homeless. So really, this entire story is just an entreaty to you, people of Sitka. <laughs> <laughs> please, please rent something to me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for your story, Ben. I didn't realize it would turn into a call for housing, but if anyone out there hears, we, I think it's good to be, for all of us to be reminded of the times when you're not sure where you're going to find the next roof over your head or for how long. I'm sure, is anyone here, can anyone here relate to that? Oh yeah, okay. So, our next jumping ship storyteller, hi. It's also really exciting, again, we're in the flesh, I just can't get over it. <laughs> you know, in Zoom, people look kind of flat, but. Um, you got three dimensions. <laughs> welcome to the mic. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> this is Lena Cap. is a transplant from Chicago who arrived in Sitka this September to participate in the Alaska Fellows Program. They enjoy complicated baking projects, striped shirts, and staring at the ocean like a wizened old fisherman. All right, thanks everybody. Sorry I'm not wearing a striped shirt tonight. Um, but those of you on the radio can just use your imaginations. So I don't know if you've ever had a preschooler tell you that they hate your hair, but I have. And there's nothing quite like it. So... In the fall of 2020, some friends from college and I moved to Baltimore pretty much on a whim. 
And I was working as a literacy tutor for preschool students. And because 2020 was what it was, this all happened on Zoom. And so every day I would log on and look at all of them in their little rectangles and look at myself in my little rectangle and see the way I used to look. And I have blonde curly hair. And back then it was long. And I looked like a Disney princess. And the kids loved it. But I did not. And I started to feel a little stirring of weirdness about this. And in order to cope with the fact that I was on Zoom all the time, I also started running. And running reminds you that you have a body. And I did not like that one bit. I just felt so weird having a corporeal form. And I was really lucky to be living with a real alphabet soup of LGBT characters that year. And very slowly and quietly and nervously, I would pull them aside one by one and be like, something is wrong. Something is terribly wrong. I don't know. Is it my hair, my hips, my clothes, my boobs? I don't know what it is, but I don't like it. And I, I, I want to do something about it, but maybe, maybe I'm just making it up. I, I, and they're like, no, you seem pretty distressed about this. Like, this seems pretty real. And I was like, okay. So I thought about it, and we talked about it, and I would just sort of stare at my ceiling sometimes. Um, and then one day, everybody was gathered in the living room, and, and rather impulsively, I was like, um, hey guys, um, do you think you could help me try out some new pronouns? Do you think you could say they instead of she and them instead of her? And they were like, yeah, like, we're surprised it took you this long. <laughs> I was like, wow, that was easy. Like, what else can I do? And so one night I went on a walk with my friend and roommate Ben around the Baltimore Harbor and Ben had recently come out as trans himself and shared, I think, a lot of the thoughts and feelings and experiences that I was having at that time. And I was like, you know, I have a lot of emotions about this, of course, but I really, I really, really want to cut my hair, but I am so afraid to do that. I don't know if I'm going to like it when I do it. I don't know if it's going to look bad. And most of all, I don't know how I'm going to even begin to tell my mother. Maria is a powerful Italian woman <laughs> with fiery red curls. And our hair is not the same color, but for a long time, that was how people could tell we were related. They were like, these two are the same. And I was so afraid of losing that because... I love my mother. I love that connection with her. And most of all, I was afraid that if I, you know, cut it off, I would be showing her some kind of rejection and that she wouldn't take it well. And I didn't know how to handle it. But I was absolutely spiraling next to some boats in this harbor. And Ben was like, you know, I think if you cut your hair, you won't be afraid of it anymore. And very slowly and then suddenly all at once, we had a plan. I bought some hair scissors at CVS and one Saturday morning in January, he texted me, haircut at 2 p.m. And I said, yeah, let's do it. So I went down to our kitchen. I met him and our other roommate, Carlos, and they cut off all my hair. I, they buzzed the sides. They left me a little fluffy patch on top. And was it a good haircut by any professional standard? No. <laughs> but I raced up the stairs and locked myself in the bathroom and looked in the mirror. And finally, for the first time after a haircut, I saw someone I recognized. And I felt like I had made a choice that was not a compromise. This was no halfway little bob, which is what I had been doing for a while. And everyone who saw me in person was so excited to see me. And I was so excited because they were happy to see me the way 
I had always wanted to see myself. And there's nothing like that feeling. And the preschoolers hated it. Um, they were like, why? What have you done? You used to be pretty. <laughs> but they got over it. So I didn't say anything about this to my mom. Nothing. And then June rolled around, and I was going back home for my brother's high school graduation. And I was like, I, I need to warn her. So one day, like a couple days before I got on the plane back to Chicago, I texted her a photo of myself and was like, um, just so you can recognize me at baggage claim, I cut my hair. I really like it. Okay, thank you. And she replied, oh, I love it. That looks great on you. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> All six months of panic. And so I've had this haircut for close to a year now. I have ha since had a professional clean it up. Um, but I went home for, to Chicago for Christmas this year. And my favorite place was closed temporarily because Omicron was just raging. And I couldn't get an appointment. And so one day I asked my mom, hey, do you think you could cut my hair? And she said, yeah, of course. And she did. <laughs> Thanks so much. I love the humor and honesty and the vulnerability that comes out in these stories. Thanks again for listening to this live presentation of Sitka Tales Tales at the Beak and on Raven Radio. We have three stories left to tell. Can we hear another clap for the first three people? I'm, I'm a little obsessed tonight with real people. I'm so excited I keep mispronouncing people's names. Sorry about that. The next tale is coming from Jay Stilwell. Did I say that right? Yep. Oh, good. He's got Kansas origins, and he has lived in Seattle, Vashon Island, and Grenoble, France. He's a French speaker. He has traveled extensively in Belgium, France, and Quebec. Sitka is now home, where he works for the Sitka Sound Science Center as the business and marketing director. He lives with his wife, Deanna, and their cat, Manu. Welcome, Jay. So long, Seattle. So my first great leap was from when I packed up my belongings in my Nissan truck and left Kansas for Seattle. And yes, Toto, I was no longer in Kansas. <laughs> After six weeks on the road exploring back roads in small towns along the way, I arrived. Seattle was new. It was a mecca for all things that somebody from the slacker generation enjoyed. Flannel shirts, torn jeans, and if you know Seattle, it was events at the Kingdom. Seattle, for somebody like me who was trying to get distance from my birthplace, was a mecca. It was a place where I belonged. I was 25, no money, i.e. no responsibilities, and a sense of freedom that was priceless. 25 years later, guess what? I had more responsibilities, and that sense of freedom had diminished. I had founded a publishing company and ran that for 15 years, but it felt like a burden. 
You know, I no longer was excited about to get up each day and go to work and try to change the publishing world. And Seattle, too, had changed rapidly. The place that had welcomed me and I had always enjoyed the sense of community and the diversity and the grit of a port town had disappeared. It was called Amazon.com. It had morphed my beloved city into something I no longer recognized. Fancy cars, rows of apartments that turned beautiful downtown streets into ugly canyons. Waves of tech workers doing this, no eye contact. I felt that I no longer belonged. I was a stranger in a strange land. And it was at that point I said, I've got to go. Then, the summer of 2018, I met an intriguing woman from Sitka at the Pike Place Market. You all know the market, right? <laughs> and we started chatting about this beautiful place in this unique community in Southeast Alaska that had a variety of artisans and fishermen and scientists. And it just happened to be on an island. As we strolled through the market, she shared about her life in a small town in rural Alaska, and I talked about living in the big city. As we walked past bright, shiny vegetables and the freshly cut flowers. And as we neared the end of the market, she held up her hand <laughs> and said, this is Alaska. And I thought, wow, Alaska fits in one hand. <laughs> and at the top of her thumb, there sat Sitka. We exchanged phone numbers. And more importantly, I had been invited to visit Sitka. Well, I took her up on that invitation and my first visit was memorable. I had to battle Friday night, freeway traffic to get to the airport. I almost missed the flight, but I was determined, so they let me on. <laughs> and then I was in this plane, and the plane was shaking and moving around that we all know is wintertime flying in Alaska. I look out the window, and all I can see, it's black. And I'm thinking the whole time, what the hell am I doing? Is this the right thing to do? And then, out of nowhere, a small strip of runway light here, and after a series of bumps, it landed. And as we're taxiing to the single gate at Sitka Airport, I felt something I hadn't felt in a long time. I was home. The first visit was a whirlwind, of activity, my goodness. We went to the radio hour at the Performing Arts Center. We had a birthday celebration. And then to top it off, it was the Sitka Conservation Society's Wild Foods Potluck. Man, I was hooked. 
Unfortunately, guess what? I had to catch a plane back to Seattle. For the next year and a half, every other weekend, Thursday night, I would fly up to Sitka. Friday, I would work remotely, and Sunday, I would fly back to Seattle. This was great. I became an Alaska MVP, and the air, air miles stacked up. We made this work for that time, but each time, I felt like I was leaving something here in Sitka. You know, so the plan kept thinking in my head. I just needed a reason to jump that ship. And then March 2020 arrived. Many of us will remember as that's the date that COVID was shutting businesses down and people were getting sick. The company I was working for in Seattle said we could all be remote. And I bet you can guess where I thought remote was. I planted my flag in Sitka, and then I moved on to continue with preparing to make that great leap in that change in course, because I had decided that this was where I wanted to be. So I convinced my boss that I needed to move on from Seattle, and that's what I did. I can say this, jumping ship, is not always easy. And knowing all the details, I've never had. But I do know that being able to do this has been the greatest thing that's happened to me. So I will leave it with this. In my office, I have a sign that said, I followed my heart, and it led me to sick. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. I mean, wow, we had a love story in a pandemic time. That is a great jumping ship story. If you're just tuning in, I'm your host, Ellen Frankenstein, and you're listening to Sitka Tells Tales on Raven Radio. And I have Freya here. And Freya recently moved to Sitka this past summer, and you might know her from her job at the Old Harbor Books. She enjoys adventuring, exploring new places, creating art and music, and getting to know new people and learning their stories. A few years ago, my best friend and I decided to jump ship. We both had gone traveling a little bit before in our lives, and I'd done like a study abroad, but we'd never gone on a big adventure before. And so we had this, not really a plan, but this idea that we were going to go on an open-ended travel adventure. And we were going to go to Thailand and going to go to Nepal because my father's from Nepal and I never had the chance to meet my family from over there and I wanted to get to know them. So we decided to start in Thailand and we didn't really have a plan. We just kind of thought, we're going to go and see what happens. So our idea was we would stay in hostels for short periods of time, like a couple days only. And every time we were in a new hostel, we'd meet all these interesting, exciting, weird people. We'd hang out with them for a couple of days and then we'd never see them again. And we kind of went on like this for a while. We traveled throughout Thailand. We got to Nepal, and I got to meet my family, and it was really interesting. But one thing that we noticed was we kept running into all these weird experiences. Like, at one point, I got a really bad toe infection, and I was forced to take medication against my will. And 
At another point, we got followed by a leopard in a rice field. And these weird things kept happening. One time we were in a thunderstorm and we couldn't get back to our hostel and we finally made it back super late. Our key broke off in the door. So all this stuff kept happening and we're like, this is really weird. We were kind of like, okay, we got to get used to what's going on in our lives. And we kind of came up with this mantra, this idea of something will happen. And the thing about the expression something will happen is that it can be used for any occasion. If you're really excited about something, you say, oh, something will happen, something great's gonna happen. And if you're feeling apprehensive or nervous, you can say, something will happen. So this was the attitude that we carried with us. And we definitely had some interesting experiences along the way. And when we got to Nepal, we decided to do a yoga teacher training program because we both love doing yoga and we wanted to expand our skills. So we applied for this program we didn't do very much research beforehand, and so when we got to the program, we didn't realize it was a deprivation-based yoga program. <laughs> and um, deprivation-based yoga programs kind of are based off the fact that if you give up your earthly possessions, you'll attain enlightenment or nirvana, things like that, which is a really great premise. But we hadn't really prepared for that, and so we weren't really ready for you know the lack of heat, lack of food, and most importantly, the lack of coffee that we had not prepared for. So we get to this yoga studio, and we were trying to get really involved in our practice and really enjoy the experience, but it was kind of a weird program. We were forced to use these neti pots every morning, and um, it got to the point where I started getting like nosebleeds. We were really uncomfortable. We were really struggling. And we thought, well, we don't want to waste their time, and we're not really as committed as we should be, so maybe we'll, we'll leave, we'll back out early, and we'll let them know. But unfortunately, it was up in the hills of Nepal, and it was away from civilization. It was inside of a gated community. So we had to ask permission to leave, and they made us pay to, to leave, which was pretty rough. So we jumped ship from the yoga teacher training program. We thought, what are we going to do now with our lives? And then we got a message from a man that we met twice in a hostel in Thailand. And he said, hey, I'm going to South Africa. Would you two be interested in coming with me? And um, when a strange man that you barely know asks you to go to the other side of the world with him, you have to do the most responsible, conscientious thing, which is definitely say yes. So we went to South Africa with a man that we barely knew. It actually turned out to be a really great experience. We traveled all over. We had all these interesting experiences. I climbed to the top of Table Mountain. I injured my leg really badly. It was great. Um, <laughs> then we went to Indonesia, and we kept traveling, and we were having just such a great time. But we were starting to run out of money. The money we'd saved up was slowly dwindling away, and so we decided to apply for Australian work visas because we'd heard that that was really easy to get. And it's true, getting an Australian work visa is fairly simple. But what people will not tell you is that once you get to Australia, it's extremely hard to find a sustainable job. So we got to Australia, and we were working as housekeepers in a hostel in a small town on the Gold Coast. It was filled with bats everywhere. It was really interesting. We got jobs working at a freelance mini golf course company that was run by one man, one man only, and he was incredibly sweet. He was like a father figure to us. We got jobs as au pairs. We did all kinds of weird things, and we made it work for a while, and 
Eventually, we decided to come home and take a break from our travels. And But I think if there is a moral to this story, it's that you're going to jump ship a lot in your life. I'm only 25 years old, and I feel like I've jumped ship so much already. And when I was younger, I used to be kind of nervous about how things were going to turn out. I was always worrying about what the future would be like. And, and I, I try to look at life with this attitude now that every new obstacle is just a new adventure. It's a new chance to grow and, and experience life. And when I get really stressed out, I take on the attitude of, I take a deep breath, I close my eyes, and I say, something will happen. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Freya, for your story. And to all of you for listening or tuning in or being in the audience of this first Sitka Tells Tales that's live since March 1st, 2020. And we're at the Beak. And our last story for the night is from Aaron Fulton. Aaron was born and raised in Minnesota, but has been calling Sitka home for nearly 10 years now. You probably heard her voice in the morning on KCAW reading the morning news. During the summer, she's waxing poetic about whales, trees, and glaciers as a naturalist. Welcome, Aaron. So I graduated from undergrad with a BA in biology and environmental studies from St. Olaf College in 2009, right smack in the middle of the Great Recession. So the probability of gainful employment was slim. The probability of living with my parents was quite high. So I did what many recent alums did. I decided to avoid the real world as long as possible, and I applied to grad school. <laughs> to give some context, I am... I can get some pretty serious tunnel vision. If I find an author I like, I will read every single book they have ever written and probably in rapid succession. If I find a topic interesting, I'll declare a double major the first semester of my freshman year and never waver. So upon graduation, I applied to a couple different grad programs and lo and behold, it was the environmental management and forestry program at Duke that decided I was an acceptable candidate. So I continued exactly where I left off. The forestry work I did during summers in undergrad transitioned into a master's of forestry. The carbon offset program I started at St. Olaf morphed into studying carbon offsets on a larger scale as growing entire forests for carbon offsets. I picked my course and gosh darn it, I'm going to follow it. So for my master's thesis, I did a project with two good friends, and it was a pretty awesome project. I'm, I'm really proud of it in many ways. We did a feasibility study looking at certifying Duke's 7,000 acres of forest land for carbon offsets. The first part of the project was awesome. It was months of tramping through the North Carolina forests, trying to avoid briars and poison ivy and ticks while hugging so many trees and finding a bunch of cool plants to identify and lots of creepy crawlies. It was grueling, but it was wonderful. The second half of the project was enlightening. It was that first glimpse of the harsh light of day at the end of the tunnel I was barreling down. That second part of the program was taking all of the heights and diameters of the trees we measured and typing it into a spreadsheet of doom that we then put through a database full of really complex and convoluted equations to eventually come out the other side that says this is the sequestered carbon value. 
If anyone has ever worked with unwieldy access databases, you know the level of hell I was living in at the time. It is something that if you miss a single comma or end parenthesis, not only will the equation not work, the program will crash and so will your computer. And then you get to start all over again. For all the time we had spent out in the forest, just reveling in the wonders of, of that ecosystem, I was now spending that much time and more looking at those same trees as numbers on a spreadsheet. The project did go well. We were really proud of it. The end management suggestions we had for Duke Forest ended up being taken by Duke University, which is pretty awesome. But the end of the project meant that I was now staring at graduation. And the light at the end of that tunnel started to look a lot like an oncoming train. I just spent the last two and a half years intensely studying how to grow and manage trees for carbon offset value and not just for timber. But after actually doing some of that nitty gritty work, it was a topic I find fascinating and important, but it went from being fascinating to sounding just frightening to imagine a life spent looking at trees as numbers on spreadsheets. So here I was at graduation, right where I was the last time I graduated. Crap. The two guys I did my master's thesis with, they both applied for and were hired into doing carbon offset accreditation at two different firms. They're still there. They're like vice presidents of their companies now. And then there was me who didn't even bother applying. I knew I could probably get a job, but I didn't want one. So I was back where I started. I graduated. Chances of employment, low. Chance of living with my parents, very high. So as I was packing up my things in North Carolina to move back to Minnesota and the existential dread was really starting to settle in, I got an alumni magazine from St. Olaf. And the cover story was about an alum who lost his job during the Great Recession and kind of reinvented himself and reoriented into the environmental field after taking a month-long trip to Alaska. I'm like, oh, I had been to Alaska. I took a trip on the Inside Passage my summer after my freshman year of high school. My grandma paid for my mom, my dad, my brother, and I to go. And I remember it being a magical land of trees and islands and fishing boats. And it was delightful. I'll, I'll email this guy. So I looked up his information, asked him if he had any recommendations, tips for trying to find work in the environmental field in Southeast. I was very open to any and all suggestions. And he was great. He ended up keeping me in contact with a ton of really amazing people all throughout Southeast. And it just so happened that the Sika Conservation Society had a temporary position that they were hiring for, and I qualified. Temporary position on the other side of the continent. Unknown duration of time living with my parents. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I love my parents, but that temporary job was looking pretty good. And, and it was. It got me here. When it finished, I found that I wasn't finished with Sitka. So I ended up finding a job at the wine bar, at the bookstore, at a community-supported fishery, at the radio station, at a flower shop, at the national park, and eventually waxing poetic about trees on boats with tourists. And I really like it. I ended up getting two master's degrees at Duke University to try to grow trees with their carbon value and look at beautiful spreadsheets that wouldn't crash because I would figure out what I was doing. But I really didn't want to. I, I jumped ship from that, and I ended up landing on a boat talking about the amazing Tungus National Forest that I get to live in the middle of, that I get to go out and still hug those trees and find those creepy crawlies and tell all these people about the wonderful place that we get to live. And I'm really glad I 
avoided that oncoming train that I jumped ship and landed on a boat here in Sitka. It's a life I had no intention of living, and I am so, so glad that I am. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, all our storytellers, Aaron, Connie, Ben, Lena, Jay, and Freya, for bringing Sickatel's tales to life in person and on the radio. How's our live audience feeling about being here? Do you think we should go back to doing this on Zoom? No. I really want to thank the Beak. I want to thank the Sitka Soup and the Daily Sitka Sentinel for getting the news out. I want to thank our lovely timer, Shannon, our volunteer photographer, Caitlin, to Ryan, who's been helping out, Adam and Becky, who have been very patient with this experiment, our first time being live in person, live in the radio, and this really sweet guy named Dave Emmert, who edits our shows and makes them ready for podcast and further use in the future. We also got a little support for doing this work from Alps Credit Union and Old Harbor Books. And again, I want to appreciate everyone who's tuned in. If you have an idea for a theme, you have feedback, you want to tell a story, you want to collaborate, you want to help, please contact me, Ellen, do artchangeinc at gmail.com. You can look for Sitka Tales Tales News on Facebook and Instagram, and you can find past Sitka Tales Tales episode on the Art Change website, artchangeinc.org. They get up there eventually, and you can find us on podcasts.